Dear friends, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 8. We're going to be walking through verses 19 and through 21. And this is one of those passages that you could just skip over if you weren't, weren't careful, if you weren't mindful of this passage. But this is a passage of great importance. This passage is of great significance. And it's of great significance because of what Jesus says here and how countercultural what he says is to the people that are there at this time. This passage, this episode, this instance is recorded in three of the four Gospels. And so for it to be recorded in three of the four Gospels, it means that the Gospel writers found it to be significant. Let's go ahead and read this short passage. It's verses 19 through 21 of Luke chapter 8. And it says this, Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, what's interesting is that this passage is dealing with a controversial situation in the ministry of Jesus in the first century. But this is also a controversial passage in church history. Because if you look at this passage in just its plain reading, it very clearly contradicts Roman Catholic dogma. And if you're violating Roman Catholic dogma, according to the Roman Catholic tradition, you are committing a moral sin. It means, according to Roman Catholic theology, that were you to die at that point in believing that which is contrary to the dogmas of the church, you would be cast into hell. There would be no opportunity for purgatory, not that there is anyway, but according to Roman Catholic theology. Um, there is a superstition that is tied into this dogma, and the superstition is known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. And this is a belief that, was, that came about early in church history, around the 4th century. And it's the idea that Mary never had any other kids, and Mary and Joseph did not have a normal marriage, but rather she remained a virgin the entirety of her life. This is taught specifically in a book called the Proto-Gospel of James. I'm not going to read out of that. Actually, if I read some of the content of that gospel, there would be some of you that would be pulling me aside afterwards, asking me why I would read something like that on the Lord's Day when the people of God are gathered together. But there are certain incredible things in that, in that, in that book as it is written that basically Jesus is just beamed out. He just comes and there he is at one moment he is in Mary's tummy the next moment he is in her arms and that is just how that happened and it is pushing forward this superstition but this passage talks about the children that Mary had this passage talks about the siblings of Jesus, there are multiple passages in the scriptures that speak of the family of Jesus, the, the family that Jesus was raised in, Matthew 13, 55 through 56. It says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, is his mother not called Mary? Are not these brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not also his, these his sisters with us? 
Where then did this where then did this man get these things? There's a similar passage also in Mark 6, verses 2 and 3. We see John 2 and verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. We see this even on into the book of Acts, Acts 1 and 14. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We have no reason to read these passages in any way than just a normal general reading and understand the fact that Jesus was the firstborn child as it is declared, but there were other children in this family. Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage after the birth of Jesus. We can see that also emphasized in passages early in the Gospels. We see Matthew 1 and 18. It says this, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you read that in a very general way, it's very clear that there was, there was no consummation of the marriage until Jesus had been born. And that's why it says, before they came together. Again, Matthew 1 and 24 through 25. It says, When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name John. This is communicating the fact that Mary and Joseph interacted as a normal married couple after Jesus was born. Lastly, I want to emphasize this. That this contradicts even one of the Psalms. It contradicts a messianic Psalm. Psalm 69 verse 8 says this, I have I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Now, we're going to see that in this passage and also in other Gospels that talk about this particular instance. Roman Catholics hold to this idea, but it is contrary to the Scripture. Some will give the argument, and they will say, well, this word here that is used um, could, could mean that these were the cousins of Jesus, but there is a word that can be used for cousin, and you see Paul using that regarding the cousin of Barnabas in Colossians 4 and verse 10. The bottom line here is that you've got to do exegetical gymnastics to work in this Roman Catholic superstition. It's found nowhere in Scripture. Furthermore, there's other aspects that are pushed forward, and that's this idea of the immaculate conception. And some people think the immaculate conception has to do with Jesus and the conception of Jesus but that's not what it is. The Roman Catholic teaching of the Immaculate Conception is talking about Mary. The idea that Mary was born without original sin. And we've already hit on that idea that that is something that's contradicted early in the book of Luke. We see Mary declaring in Luke 1, 46 and 47, it says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my, my spirit rejoices in my Savior. She was not one without sin. She was not one who was born without sin. She is one who was in need of a savior. The prophecy that was given early in the scriptures is that there would be a child of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And this is fully being fulfilled in what is happening. In Jesus coming forward as he is, born of a virgin, it is fulfilling that prophecy, not coming from the line of Adam, but coming from a woman. So now that we've dismissed many of these superstitions, I want us to look at this passage and understand it within its context and think through what Jesus is communicating about the family of God. Who is the family 
of God. There's three questions that I want us to consider in walking through this passage. And the first question is, who are the members of the family of God? How do we make this determination? How do we know who they are? Because Jesus is contradicting what people believed in the first century. And the reality is many of us nowadays will even fall into such a trap and not rightly understanding who is a part of the family of God, who is a part of the kingdom of God, who is saved by grace and through faith. Secondly, the question is, what are the characteristics of the family of God? What are the characteristics of those who are members of the family of God? Jesus deals specifically with that here, and it contradicts what his audience was believing at this time. And lastly, I want to answer this question, and I want to end here, and that is, how does one become a member of of the family of God. I think that's a question we need to answer since in the passage we're going to be looking at the characteristics of the family of God and we're going to be asking, we're going to be looking at um, who are members of the family of God. We must answer the question, how does one become a member of the family of God? How is it that you go from being in a state of enmity against God? How is it that you go from being in an alliance with Satan against the Lord and being adopted into the family of God. Let's, let's start with the first question. And that first question is, who are the members of the family of God? Let's look at Luke 18 and 19 and 20. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. Jesus' behavior here would have been shocking to this audience at this time. That's why it's recorded, as I said, in three out of the four Gospels. Physical descent was very important to the Jews. I want to remind you of the conversation that Jesus had in John 8 with the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders and the Jews that were there that were saying, we have, we are descendants of Abraham. Let's look back at that passage, John 8, beginning in verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Look at the offense that they took there at that point. Look at the shock that they had at that point. Like, how can you say that we are going to become free? How can you say that we are in some way no longer going to be enslaved? We have been freed. We were freed out of a slavery to, to Pharaoh. We are free. We are children of Abraham. They are looking at this through a, a natural descent. And I want you to see this as well. This is one of the areas that really hangs people up on Christianity. This is where the great offense occurs. When you begin to tell someone of their need of Christ Jesus, if you tell someone about the good things that Jesus will do in their lives, the ways in which Jesus will improve their marriage, their parenting, the ways in which they can climb the corporate ladder at work, they will accept that. You will have people of, of many different faiths that will gladly accept that. But when you begin to talk to someone about the ways in which they've broken the law of God, the ways in which they are in, in dire straits, that they have a great problem before them that they cannot solve through their own actions. There's a great offense that is there. 
But something that has to be recognized for all people everywhere, that we are not in a good standing with God when we are born into this world. It doesn't matter what your family heritage is. It doesn't matter where you can bring your genealogy back to. As it's been said many times before, God has no grandchildren. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 34 of John 8. He says, Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Again, they're going back to their genealogy. They're going back and saying, this is our heritage. This is our pedigree. We, we are born children of Abraham. Being born children of Abraham puts us in a place of being a chosen people. And Jesus is pressing upon this. And Jesus presses upon it greatly to the point that they are, they are greatly offended with him. Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if, you were your, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do what your father de desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And you see these Jews interacting with Jesus here and not truly believing upon him, not truly believing his word. They are looking for a Messiah they will push forward their own presuppositions that they already had, that they were in a good standing, someone who will push forward their own standing, someone who will push forward their own standard of righteousness. And Jesus is standing here in Luke 8 before people as well, and people that are seeing this, this, this pedigree, this heritage that they come from, and that being sufficient. The sad truth is, is that Jesus' brothers were not even believers until after the resurrection. We see that in John 7 and verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to him, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that it works. its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying that, he remained in Galilee. His, his brothers were almost egging him on, just almost in a sarcastic way. You're the Messiah? You're the one that's come forward? Well, just go ahead. Go to the feast. Show them who you are. Why don't you just show this off to everyone? They were not believing 
at this time. I want you to consider that. These are people who, who grew up in the household of Jesus. These are people who were around Jesus the entirety of his life up until this point. And they did not believe. Jesus had never sinned. They saw a sinless man, a sinless boy, up into a man, living amongst them for all of these years. And yet they believed not. In fact, they almost mocked him. Just go forward, go on up. Come on, show off this, this messiahship that you have. But some of them came around at the end. We saw that in, in Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoted to themselves in prayer, together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They came to faith in Christ Jesus, but they were not saved through their lineage. Even through this, this natural relation, that they, they were not saved through that. This is something that, that they had to, that had to be dealt with individually. Please, please see this reality. Please see this, dear friends. Children, see this. You will stand before the Lord. You will give an account for how you have lived your life. You will give an account for, for what you have done. You will give an account for even every idle word that you use. And it will be you. You will stand before the Lord. You will give the account. Your parents will not be there. Your friends will not be there. It will be you. And there's one of two ways that can go down for each and every person. You can either stand before the Lord on your own, on your own righteousness, on your own goodness, through your own religious deeds. You can try to stand there based on your own heritage. I come from a family. We went to church. And you will stand and be judged for your actions by God's holy law. Or you can stand in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And it requires that you see your need of Christ. It requires, first and foremost, that you see your sinfulness. That you see the ways in which your sin displeases God. That God despises your sin. If you want to know how much God despises your sin, you can look at the cross. You can see the, the seriousness of the sin. You can see the, the seriousness of the requirement God hated sin so much that Christ had to clothe himself in flesh and dwell amongst us. That there would be one who would serve as a federal head. That there would be one who would serve as the second Adam. Because you were born. You were born a son of Adam, a daughter of Adam. That's what you're born. That's how you come into the world. You don't come into the world in a right standing with God. You come into the world at enmity with God. You come into the world in opposition to God. We are not like Pinocchio in the Disney movie, just a little boy and I, I just went the wrong way. No, no, we are like Pinocchio in the original novel. If you've read that, you should read it. He is a wicked and terrible little boy. He kills Jiminy Cricket in the first chapter. He sears his conscience in the first chapter. It is very different than the Disney movie. He's not a little boy that just went the wrong way, lost his money. His family, Jesus' family, consider this. They grew up with Jesus. They grew up in the household. Jesus is perfect. He's never sinned. And they think he is crazy. They think he is insane. Mark 3 
20 and 21. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. That's how intense his ministry is going. That's how popular Jesus is at this point, that people are just crowding around him. He doesn't even have time to eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They went out to get a hold of him, to, to compel him to, to get out of this crowd, compel him to stop doing what he's doing. For they were saying, this is his family saying this, he is out of his mind. His family that, that Jesus grew up in, they thought he was crazy. They thought he had lost his mind. You're just, you're taking this too far, okay? You're even getting out of hand. And it seems, I'm just, I'm not saying Mary wasn't a believer because Mary confessed her need of a savior. But Mary seems to be in this group going to Jesus at this time. And this is happening at the same time. It's my belief that in each, this isn't happening three different times, but rather the gospel writers are writing of this situation that happened. And so you have more information about this um, situation in other gospel accounts. And Jesus is there along with the brothers and sister trying to compel Jesus to come on. Let's keep things reasonable. Let's keep things reasonable. And we see that. So that, that part about Jesus... Um, being out of his mind in Mark 3, 20 and 21 comes right before the, the similar passage in Mark 3 in verses 28 through 35 where Jesus gives that same statement, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. John MacArthur makes this point about this passage. He says, Christ's point is that relationships to him are not defined in human terms by physical or family ties. This is not a natural generation. If natural generation was sufficient, if you could merely just be born into a family and be a part of a family of God, if you could just be born into a family through natural and normal generation, Jesus would not have needed to come. Adam would have been sufficient. If you could have taken care of this on your own, if some people could have done some religious rituals around you, if you could have just done enough religious actions to put yourself in a right standing or just kind of get yourself back on track, there is absolutely no need for the Son of God to clothe himself in flesh and come down amongst us. No. Who are the, who are the members of the family of God. This is what we see first and foremost. They are not members of natural relation. Yes, they, they may come about within a family. Praise be to God that he raises up believers within Christian families. Praise be to God. Please see this. There are so many who have grown up over the centuries who have not been born into Christian households been born into all kinds of pagan households, households do not, that, that do not have the word of God, households that are not bringing children to church. This is, this is a blessing. This is, this is a good thing to be born into a Christian household. In fact, it, it can just be just taken for granted sometimes. And praise be to God that he uses the relationships between parents and children and even children to parents at times. Some of you have had that. Well, you have become converted. You have become a Christian. And you influenced your parents who were not Christians. 
Praise be to God that he uses these relationships, these familial ties, these interactions, to bring people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But even though he uses those means, he uses those opportunities, it's not by natural relation. You individually become a member of the family of God. We as a church, although we may, for the ease of communication, put families under deacons, we are not communicating the idea that these are Christian families. You could say, sure, we're a Christian family, but we're not communicating that all members of that household are Christians. We're not communicating the idea that all members of the household are in Christ Jesus. There is but individual church membership. There is but individual recognition of your sinfulness. There is but individual recognition of your insufficiency. There's a personal relationship between you and Christ Jesus. Yes, you are saved into a community. You're saved into the community of God. You're saved into the family of God. It's not just you and your Bible under a tree. But you are saved individually into a community. God has no grandchildren. Secondly, what are the characteristics of the family of God? What are the characteristics of this family, those who are members of the family of God, those who have been saved by grace and through faith, those who are in Christ Jesus? Look at verse 21 of Luke 8. He says, he answers them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus dispels this notion that someone is a part of the family of God because of the familiar relation. Your pedigree doesn't place you within the kingdom of God. You're not there by natural birth. Neither does attending church grant that to you. Neither does listening to sermons on the internet. These are all good things. They're absolutely necessary and important things. But you individually must see your sin. You individually must see your need of Christ Jesus. And Jesus is making a distinction here. He's making a distinction here between those who are adopted into the family of God, those who have been saved by grace and through faith, and those who are at enmity with God, those who are children of God, and those who are children of the devil. That's exactly how Paul words that. You're a child of God, or you're a child of the devil. There's not an intermediate place that you can be. You can't kind of just hug the middle, just be right there in the center. There's no purgatory. That's, that's a false concept. That's not an idea that is in anywhere in the scriptures. And this is, this is offensive to people. I, I will tell you that this is one of the areas that people become most offended. You tell people that Jesus will bless them in many ways, and they will shake your hands. They will hug you. They will buy your books. You tell them that they're dead in their trespasses and sins, that they're hopeless on their own. And they will turn away. They will despise you. They, they will yell at you. They will, they will curse at you. They will say all kinds of unthings, unkind things to you because you're pressing against man's religion. There's two religions. Two religions in this world. Or we could say all religions fall into two categories. And there is the category that says man can, through his own efforts, 
save himself. Man can, through his own efforts, bridge the gap between he and God. And there is another category of religion, which only Christianity falls into this category. And that teaches that man is hopeless on his own, that man on his best day, man on his best day, falls short of the glory of God that is in Christ Jesus. But you must see the standard. You must see the highness of the standard of God. It's, it's, not, it's not your culture's standard of righteousness. It's not the, the standard that you grew up with necessarily in your family. It's not the standard that puts on a good face in front of other people. No, it is a standard of, of perfect obedience to the law of God. That is the requirement. That is what is necessary. And Jesus is pushing that right here. Jesus is saying, first and foremost, that you are born into this world, dead in your trespasses and sins. You're born into this world at enmity with God, and there must be a change that happens to you. Something must change because you're not naturally born into the family of God. You must be adopted into the family of God. And secondly, we'll em emphasize this as we continue. But there's going to be actions that follow those who are true believers. This is going to have an effect upon your life. You're not just going to go on as though you would if you did not know Christ, as though you were not even adopted. And understand the seriousness of what Jesus is doing here. And I, I, I read this in multiple commentaries. I saw this theme through multiple commentaries, and I found this really fascinating that they said this is the riskiest thing that Jesus ever did in his ministry. Now, I wouldn't have thought of that when I first read this passage. I wouldn't have thought that what happens here, that Jesus saying that, that my family, my mother and my brothers and my sister are those that hear the word of God and do it, those who follow the will of God. Perhaps I've read too many of Paul's letters, and I just hear that, and I say, well, yeah, that sounds... Like Christianity to me, that sounds like Ephesians chapter 2 and, and verse 10. It sounds very consistent, very normal. But Jesus here is risking the, his time here in the first century because they had such a connection to the pedigree. They had such a connection to that immediate family. He's risking being accused of violating the fifth commandment, being accused of not honoring his family, not honoring his father and his mother. But it was a risk that was necessary. It was a risk that was important because there are those that were there that were leaning, as we read in John 8. Remember that. I read through that long passage so that you could kind of be simmering on that as we're walking through this and, and thinking through this, that this is kind of the, the, the zeitgeist. This is, this is the spirit of the age. They, they looked. They said, hey, we are children of Abraham. This is, this is how we're born. We're just accepted by God. We're just chosen by God. And they weren't remembering the stories. They, they weren't remembering that there are children of Abraham who died in unbelief in the wilderness. There are children of Abraham that did not make it into the promised land because of their unbelief. They were not trusting God. They, they, they were saved out of slavery to Egypt, and they immediately went back to their idolatry. They just went and took the worship they had in Egypt and they began to mix it with this new religion that they had here and they were kind of combining the two and Aaron's making the calf and he's saying, look, here's the God that saved you. Here's the God that freed you out of slavery to Egypt. They're not remembering this. 
that there are changes that happen in the lives of the people in the Old Testament. They weren't just born into a family and in a good and right standing. Can you remember the story of Joseph? Do you remember how his brothers treated him? Do you remember that a brother was selling him into slavery at one point, and we see a changed life? We see that same brother then pleading with Joseph, no, 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 don't make me get my younger brother. It will, it, it will bring my father down. It will break my father's heart. It will crush him. He may even die. Where was his concern when he sold Joseph into slavery? Where was his concern at that time? But despite his father, his father showing favoritism, get one back at his father. No, there, you see the change. You see the regeneration that happened. The effect that happened, the old covenant would not be sufficient to save people. We'll get there. I'm getting ahead to my last point, but the old covenant's not sufficient. It wasn't effective in doing this. It was effective in showing you your need of Christ Jesus. It was effective in showing your, your need of the Savior who was to come, but it was not effective in saving you of your sins was merely sufficient in pointing to your need of Christ, pointing to your need of the Messiah who was to come because you could look on the altar and see it burning day after day after day. You bring your sacrifice and it's still burning. You bring another sacrifice, it's still burning. The high priest goes forward and he sprinkles blood there on the, on the, um, there on the Ark of the Covenant. And year after year, blood being sprinkled and continually needing to happen. No, it was necessary. It's necessary to see your need of Christ Jesus. And Jesus here is emphasizing the effects of that work, the effects of the work of the Spirit of God, the effects of the work of the Word of God and the Spirit. One who hears the Word of God and responds rightly, not just with lip service. You had Jews that were saying in John 8 that they believed they verbally said they believed, but they wanted to kill Jesus. It's not a true belief. No, a true belief doesn't say that I, I see my need of Christ and I want to kill him. No, they, they, they didn't believe rightly. This is emphasized. We see the same passage in Matthew 3, 31 through 35, Mark 3 as well. In each of these passages, Jesus is emphasizing the necessity of being doers of the word doers of the will of God. He is making a distinction, a distinction that marks the lives of those who are in the family of God and those who are not. Those who have trusted upon Jesus Christ and repented of their sins and those who are still in their sin. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. And the distinction that is marking them, that he's emphasizing here, is that they hear the word of God and they are obedient that they are following the will of God. So what are the characteristics of those who are part of the family of God? It's that they do the will of God. That God is empowering them. They have seen their sin. They have seen the seriousness of their sin. And they have turned to Christ Jesus as their only hope. And this is not just, okay, I said a prayer and then I just moved on with my life just as it always was. No, there is a change. You are going to be an affected person. 
And I want you to ask yourself this. Do I have these characteristics? Am I one who hears the word of God and responds? Am I a doer of the word? Am I one who walks in obedience to the teachings of Christ Jesus? Have I responded by trusting in Christ Jesus? Am I an affected person? It is so, so necessary that we are not merely giving lip service to our faith. We've said this multiple times, and I ripped this off from R.C. Sproul, but you must be one who not merely professes a faith, but one who possesses a faith. You aren't saved by professing a faith. You must possess the faith that you profess. Certainly, if you possess a faith, you are going to profess it. You're going to declare it. But it's not merely giving it lip service. It's not merely espousing things. It's not merely even giving an intellectual assent to something. Saying, okay, that sounds good. I talked with someone last Friday. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds logical. That's not a saving faith. A saving faith is going to see your situation, is going to see the place where you were brought into this world as insufficient. You're going to see your best efforts as insufficient. And you see Christ as the only hope. Christ as the one who is sufficient. Multiple, multiple places where we see this theme of being doers of the word of God. Doers of the will of God. Pastor Fry preached on this passage, James 1, 22 through 25. Excellent sermon. Go back and listen to it. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a blessing in doing the law of God, in following the law of God, and being obedient to the law of God. That is one of the fruits of your salvation. If you are in Christ Jesus, one of the fruits of your salvation One of the effects of the work of the gospel in your heart is that you are going to walk in obedience. There's going to be sanctification, so that means you're not doing these things perfectly. But when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you are, for the first time in your existence, able to keep the law of God, able to walk in obedience. Prior to that, it was just merely outward. You weren't affected on the inside. And we must be doers in the doing. The doing is a great source of assurance. It is something that you can look at. You know, there are markers. You, you see this in the Old Testament, where the Old Testament saints something, that God would do something great in the life of that saint. You know, they would do something great in the history of Israel, and they would put up some kind of a marker. They'd put up some kind of a stone. We, we crossed the Jericho River here. We're going to put up some kind of a marker. And this is very important for the people of God because they're able to remember the work of God. They're able to remember redemptive history and what the Lord has done. I want you to see this. This is something that the Lord is doing in your life as well if you're in Christ Jesus. That you, could, you can get depressed. You can get down by even looking at your struggles with sin where you are now and it's good that God brings those to our mind it's good that we're broken for our sin but there's something you also need to do as well Christian 
that as you're struggling with your sin, as you're hearing the word of God, you're seeing the word of God, the spirit is revealing sin to you. But you need to remember as well where the Lord has brought you from. Look back. Look at the markers of God's work in your life. Remember where you were. Certainly, grieve over your sin even now. Continue to repent. Let the Lord sanctify you. Continue to be changed. That is a good thing. But it's not just, oh, woe is me because I'm dealing with this particular sin or I'm struggling in this area. I can look back and I can see, look where I was. Look where I was 20 years ago. Or maybe some of you look where I was three years ago or one year ago. And you can see, you can remember, there can be those markers there in your life as the Lord has worked within you, as the Spirit of God and the Word of God have been working within you and changing you, and you can see the drastic change that is there. You can see the ways in which, in so many ways, for many, there is this distinction. There's distinction like there was in the miracles that Jesus did. You had a man who was lame, and he was not moving, and he was just lying there, and he couldn't move himself around, and now he's up, and he's walking around, and he's carrying his bed, and people are asking him if he's violating the Sabbath by carrying around his bed. But the beauty there is he's walking around. And for so many of you, you can look back in your life, and you can say, that, that was me. It was, it was so evident. It had manifested itself so much. The, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin had so manifested themselves in your life that you can look back and say, wow, praise be to God. Where would I be apart from the work of God? You can see the fruit of God working in your life. The fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the, the spirit of God and the word of God changing you and, and working within you. It, that is like Matthew 7, where we see the same emphasis upon the doing. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall. The foundation for each of these houses is Christ Jesus. Believing upon Christ Jesus. Trusting upon Christ Jesus. And the effects of that faith, the effects of that regeneration in the person is a changed life. And that person is now building their life upon the rock of Christ Jesus. It is not okay, I'm saved, and now I'm going to go to heaven, and it doesn't really matter how I live my life. No, no, the Lord has saved you for a purpose. Just like the Jews were, were freed from Egypt. What, to just go and do whatever, to just go and, and make idols out of gold? No, they were freed from slavery to Pharaoh to go out and to worship God, to serve God. How many times did Moses go back and say, let my people go? Why, so they can just wander around and do whatever? So they can just practice whatever idolatry over here in this part of the world, rather in this part of the world? No, let my people go that they can go and worship and that's what you are saved to. That is, that is the doing. That is the, th this worship. We have this certainly corporate worship, regulative worship. There's no question there. But your life, 
your life. And Paul emphasizes that in the book of Romans. Your life should be an act of worship to God. This is a sacrifice that you're giving to God that is pleasing to the Lord. That you would be a doer, one who is following. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. The person who has trusted in Christ is going to keep the commandments, is going to be obedient to the word of God. You should say, okay, well, I'm not perfect. No, you're not perfect. You're being sanctified. But the Lord is working within you. The Lord is affecting you. You will keep the word of Christ. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, conforming you to the image of Christ Jesus. We could go on and on and on with, with passages like this. But following Christ's commandments, as one who is saved and regenerate, brought to life, one who has been given a, a new life, one who is alive and is walking in obedience, one who has been changed and is keeping commandments at that time, the keeping of the commandments on your part is not your standard, it's not the means through which you're saved. It's not your standard of, of righteousness. I heard, I heard the most incredible statement last, last Friday. We were, we, were, we were doing street evangelism, we were downtown, and there was a group, I'm not going to go into everything about them, but they're called Black Hebrew Israelites. And they were, they were preaching, not really preaching, they were using multiple verses in isolation outside of the context. And the man that was speaking at the time on this corner, uh, where ironically we would normally be speaking at that time, he was speaking on the text of the rich young ruler, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's Jesus' response? Well, you, you must keep the commandments. You've heard the commandments. And he goes and he begins to lay out the commandments. And, of course, the rich young was like, yeah, I've, I've done all of that. He wasn't paying attention when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, but he's like, sure, I did all that. This man, speaking on that, said, what must you do to inherit eternal life? And he said, you must keep the commandments of God. That's what you must do. And then he began to talk about how he doesn't eat bacon, he doesn't eat pork chops, and that was his standard of righteousness, was, was, was all these things that he, he wasn't doing, most specifically, you know, just cutting little pieces out of the ceremonial law that were his favorite ones to keep. Now, that's grossly inaccurate. When I'm talking about those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are saved, being doers of the word of God, followers of the will of God, keeping the commandments of God, I'm not saying that is the basis of your salvation. That is the means through which you are saved. That is the means that you are being judged as, as to being saved. No, you need Christ's righteousness. All of our righteousness is, is insufficient. But that is the evidence of your salvation. That is evidence of the, the effects. Can, can you imagine that if there was the, the man who was lame on the ground and he couldn't walk? And Jesus said, be healed. And the man continued just to sit there and he never moved kind of a miracle is that yeah he's healed but he's just going to keep laying there no he's going to stand up he's going to walk around he's not going to keep laying there if you are made alive if god has given you life if you've been regenerated if you've been given a new heart you're going to be affected you're going to be changed the characteristics of those who are part of the family of god 
is that they're going to walk in the will of God, that they're going to be obedient to the word of God, that the word of God is going to be effectual upon them. It is going to affect them. And let me tell you this, dear friends, you begin to slip into sin, you begin to walk in the wrong direction, you begin to walk into darkness as one who had known the truth, as one who had tasted the spirit, as one who had walked in the light. You begin to walk into darkness and go that other direction. Your assurance is one of the things that is going to be affected. Because one, ba- one of the evidences of assurance that we have, one of the evidences we have that we have been changed is that we are walking in truth, that we are walking in obedience. That is a characteristic of those who are in the family of God. And thirdly, I, I want to... I want to end with this portion and just ask the question, how does one become a member of the family of God? Passages like this, passages like this are of a particular interest to a Reformed Baptist. We we stand in contrast to so much of uh, Reformed theology, to to so many that are are Reformed and even even Lutheran and, and, and others. I could name others out there. But most Reformed churches are going to baptize the children of Christians. When you have a child, they're going to, you're going to bring the child down and the child is going to be baptized and they're going to be accepted as a covenant child, as a member of the family of God, as one who is a member of the new covenant. That's how they would understand it. And this is the belief of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters that you are born into the family of God. I believe that Jesus is pushing back on that idea. I mean, if you were to be born in the family of God, certainly being a child of Abraham should have made you a part of the family of God. No, something had to change within you. The Lord had to affect you. You see even a change in Abraham's life, do you not? Do you not see a man who does not trust the word of God? The God says that I will, you, you will have a child. I will bless you with a child. This is going all the way back to the promise made in the garden that a child's going to come forward, a Messiah is going to come forward. It's going to come forward from your line. It's going to be an act of God. The child of the woman is going to come forth from your line. And he takes things into his own hands. We have have Hagar and Ishmael that come into that. We have have Abraham not trusting the Lord and saying, oh, Sarah is my sister multiple times. This wealthy man, this powerful man, this man who who had his own personal army begins to cringe, begins to cringe at this this other man that has perhaps a more powerful army. Wasn't trusting the word of God, wasn't trusting God, and you see him trusting God, even to the point of the sacrifice of Isaac. Understand, that's what's happening in that story, that, that he's trusting God. I'm going to trust, I have not trusted God for so many times in my life. I've taken things into my own head. I'm going to trust God at this point. And the Lord was faithful. The Lord was faithful and the Lord brought forth that which he promised. The Lord preserved the seed that would come forward. You don't join the family of God through natural just, just natural generation. That's, that's not how this happens. Um, rather, you're not born into the family of God in this way. This occurs not through natural generation, but through regeneration. 
You were born into the old covenant. That's true. You can look at the old covenant. You can see you were born into the old covenant. Uh, a male that was born into the old covenant was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, but the old covenant was not efficacious in saving you from your sins. There's no promise that is there sacrificing animals in this way and you will spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. If you were faithful in that covenant, there were temporal blessings that were granted, but they pointed to the necessity of the Messiah to come. Each and every one of these aspects of the ceremonial law, each and every aspect of the sacrifices that were happening in the tabernacle were pointing to the need of the Savior to come, the need of the one who would come. Consider what Paul says. Paul emphasizes this in Acts 13, 38 and 39. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You could not be freed from your sins by following the law of Moses. It would merely point out the ways in which you were falling short. You would see these ways. That's why Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. The sacrifices that Job did were merely pointing to the need of a Savior. No, there is a new covenant. And even the old covenant is pointing to the necessity of the new covenant. That new covenant was being pointed to even there in the garden of the one who would come forward. This new covenant, Jeremiah 31, in verse 31 through 34, the Lord says, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. These are a people that are being saved, not according to this old covenant, where they were born into this old covenant, but rather these are a people that all of the people that are there within this covenant know the Lord. You had those in the old covenant that were there and they died in the wilderness and many of them died and they went to hell because they did not believe in the Savior to come. They were idolaters. They were not trusting in the grace of the Lord. They were not desiring to be changed. They had not been affected by the word of God. And so you had there in the Old Covenant those who were regenerate, those who had been changed. We can walk through many of these, these changes in the lives of people in the Old Testament. Let me look at Samson. You see the life that Samson lived, and then you see him there recorded in the book of Hebrews as one who had faith. You see Lot. He didn't look so great many times in the Scriptures, but you see him recorded as righteous Lot, one who had faith, one who was believing upon the Savior to come. All who are in the new covenant know the Lord. You don't have to say, you should know the Lord. They all know the Lord. That is required. That is, that is the entrance into the new covenant is to see your need of Christ and to trust in him, to know the Lord, to be changed, not through natural generation, but through regeneration. And this results, this is an adoption 
This is the whole concept of adoption, this idea that is so emphasized in Paul's writings. Romans 8, let's begin with verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul argues to the people here. He's using this concept of adoption. He's using this concept of being members of the new covenant as a basis whereby they should walk in obedience. You should not live as worldly people because you were saved out of that. You have been raised. You have been changed. You have been affected. Don't live like one who has not been changed, one who has not been affected. And he emphasizes the idea that they have been adopted into the family of God. Adopted. Adopted into the family. Do you you understand the greatness of this concept? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. That's what Paul is emphasizing in this passage. It is those that hear the word of God and are doers of the word of God. Those who have been changed. It is those. Those are the people. Those are the people that are a part of the family of God. And their trust is not in this world. Their trust is not in the things of this world. Their trust is not in the riches and the powers of this world. They have an inheritance. Do you see that? Dear dear Christian, you you have an inheritance. That, That is the significance of being a part of the family of God. That there is nothing, nothing, nothing that this world could give you that in any way can compete with the inheritance you have in Christ Jesus. First and foremost, the fact that you were saved. Saved out of the deadness of sin. Your trespasses and sins. Saved out of that and brought to life. But furthermore, the riches of the glories that are there in Christ in this life and the Spirit of God and the Word of God working within you and sanctifying you, that that would be sufficient for us in this life. But even more than that, even more than that, the inheritance that we have in glory, the Lord has established for us, the Lord is establishing for us in glory, in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, that which is greater, that, is, uh, that which is of more worth than all, all of this world could grant to you. And it is granted by grace and through faith to those who are adopted in Christ Jesus. May we not be those, dear friends, may you not be the one who is trusting in yourself. Romans 10, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, for being, ignorant of right, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You naturally come into this world, an idolater. You naturally come into this world seeking to attain your own level of righteousness. You naturally come into this world seeking to establish your own standard of righteousness and to judge yourself and others by it. 
ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's the issue there. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Those who were there before the Lord and were trusting in their pedigree were being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were trusting in their own standard of righteousness. You must create your own standard of righteousness to justify yourself. It's not sufficient, though. That's not the standard the Lord uses, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. You must see that first. Please see that. You must see the righteousness of God and submit yourself to that and say that I am insufficient. I, I, I am not good enough, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. There's two families in this world. They fall into one of two categories. They are those that submit themselves to their own law, their own standard of righteousness, their own religion. And there are those who have submitted themselves to the law of God who have said, I am not sufficient. I cannot do this. Christ is my only hope. And they don't merely give lip service. They don't merely say these things. They will be changed. They will be affected. As Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. If I'm saved, if you're in Christ, it will affect how you live. Why would it not? Why would it not affect how you live? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is your entrance. That is, that is the, the, the narrow gate. That is the narrow path. I'm insufficient. I'm trusting in Christ alone by grace and through faith. And the effect of that is verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. This is those. This is those that Jesus speaks of. These who are his family. These are who are his mother, his brothers, his sisters, who hear the word of God and do it. May you be mindful of this word. May you be considerate of God's command and the standard by which the Lord will judge in Christ. There is rest, there's assurance, and there is hope. Apart from Christ, there is no solution for your sin in your life, your family, or even that of your culture. Be in Christ, cling to Christ, and trust in Christ as the only solution that God has given for the great problem in the world, which is your sin.